Welcome to this week's episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. I'm Dan Hope, joined by Colin Haas Hill, as always. We're going to be joined by a couple special guests on this week's episode, so we're going to spend most of our time talking with them. We're going to be talking with the great film guru, Kyle Jones, from Eleven Warriors. A lot of you have been requesting us to have him on the show, so we're going to have him on, talk some scheme with him, get into some of the X's and O's of the upcoming game against Clemson. Uh, so that'll be coming up here soon. We're also going to talk with Brad Senkiv, who is one of my former colleagues from my time on the Clemson Beat, and we're going to talk to him as well to get some of his insight on Clemson. But I think first of all, we we got to start by talking about Jeff Halfley's decision to leave Ohio State and go to Boston College because that's been the biggest news since it came out on Friday night. Ohio State losing Jeff Halfley a really highly regarded coach, someone who clearly made a huge impact on Ohio State's defense this year after just one year. And, and this isn't something that we've seen in a while. With Urban Meyer, he had a, a two-year agreement in place where he expected his guys to stay for at least two years. By and large, that's exactly what we saw throughout his entire tenure. But now, after just one year, Jeff Halfley, someone who was making a huge impact on the recruiting trail, someone who played a huge part in the defensive turnaround this year, is leaving, and now Ryan Day's got to go replace him again. Were you surprised when it came out that, that he was leaving? Honestly, not as much as I thought I would be at first, because there had been some rumblings about it for about a week before it came out. And I will say this, and I think you probably agree with me, that from the first time he he held a press conference at Ohio State, you could see this was someone who had a, had head coach aspirations. You could see just from how charismatic he was with the media that he was someone who had that kind of head coach demeanor, and that's not that's not a great way of saying it, but you can kind of tell with assistant coaches. It's been my experience ever since I've started covering college football, that typically when you have an assistant coach who's very engaging with the media and you know really talkative and, and has a certain charisma about them, that those guys tend to become head coaches. Saw that, I, I'd say the first coach I really saw that with at Ohio State was Tom Herman, who is now the head coach at Texas. And I could see that right away with Jeff Halfley. So I felt like sooner than later he was going to be a head coach. I thought he would stay for two years rather than just one. But I think what happened here was a job that he felt was right for him came open in Boston College where he has Northeast roots. He's from New Jersey. So I think Boston College is a good fit for him in that regard. It sounds like Ryan Day gave Jeff Halfley his full blessing. Ryan Day was an assistant at Boston College for nine years. So I think... Ryan Day felt like this would be a good fit for Jeff Halfley. Martin Jarman, the athletic director at Boston College, used to work for Gene Smith. So it sounded like Gene Smith gave Martin Jarman his recommendation of Jeff Halfley. So I think the stars just kind of all aligned here. And I believe Jeff Halfley when he said at his press conference on Monday that it was not his plan to leave Ohio State, to leave Ryan Day after one year. I think that's just the way it played out because this opportunity opened up and he felt like he couldn't pass it up. Yeah, I remember the first time that, that, that we talked to him at, at a press conference, and he's just one of those guys who just sells himself well. 
And I think that that's probably one of the reasons why he connected with the defensive back so quickly. I mean, when they talk about him um, throughout the season, throughout the preseason, it was just with such reverence. It was just like this guy has been there before. He knows it. He used his NFL cachet exactly how you should, which is not to say I'm an NFL coach and we're going to do NFL things. It's to say I'm an NF- I've been an NFL coach. I've coached these guys. Here's how we can get you to this level. And he knew exactly how to use that. He knows exactly how to sell himself to the players, and that's why people like him. Um, he's he, he presents himself as probably the most likable coach in a press conference I've ever seen. He just has that way about him. It, it's just different in that, in that manner. Um, so like you, I, I, I did see eventually I, I thought that he would end up as a head coach. I didn't necessarily think it would be as, as quickly as, uh, as, as it happened. Like you said, It's an interesting job because there are so many connections to this Boston College job, whether it be Steve Adazio being an Urban Meyer guy who was leaving, Ryan Day coached there, Al Washington coached there, Jeff Halfley's from the region. It just, it makes sense. Um, I think when Rutgers opened, it just seemed like a job that was a little bit of a step down. Like, it was one of those where I guess if he left, like, He's a head coach, but, man, I, I feel like he could do better. Boston College is a program that, though it hasn't been dominant in the past decade, you can, you can imagine a path to winning there, and they've been, they've been solid. And I think, that's, I think that's probably one of the things that attracted him. It's an area in the Northeast that he's very familiar with, and it's a program that's not a rebuild. This, if you want to be really optimistic about what it could look like, like you look at what Tom Herman did at, tech, at, at Houston – and he walks into that program, and they have two tremendous years, and he parlays it into a better job. Like, to me, like, if, if everything goes right for Jeff Halfley, he's at Boston College for a few years, and then he gets to a major job. Like, if I'm a coach, that's what I'm thinking when I take a job like this. Yeah, there's people who say if he stayed at Ohio State for one more year, he could have got a bigger job. But we don't know that. And I think this is a good job for – Again, we're talking about someone who hadn't been in college football for seven years until this past year, and now he's getting a Power 5 head coaching job. So I think this is a very good job for someone who's a first-year head coach. Like you said, Boston College is coming off a 6-6 six and six season, so they're not, they weren't bad. This, isn't a, this is not a job like Rutgers where Greg Schiano's going to got to go in and really, really just change everything to give them any chance to compete. And even still they're still probably never going to be able to compete with Ohio State and Penn State and Michigan. Whereas you go to Boston College, you're probably not going to be able to compete with Clemson. But everyone else in that conference right now is beatable. So the window of opportunity is open. It's going to be tough his first year because one thing he doesn't have that someone like Greg Schiano has had for the past few weeks is he does not have the advantage of being able to de- dedicate himself to recruiting right now. He He's still focused on finishing out the season with Ohio State. So he's going to get there in January, and he's going to have to try to find some guys that are still out there and, and try to land them for that February National Signing Day. And, and, and that's going to be tough. I, I think he's not going to really have the opportunity to really build a recruiting class until the 2021 so i think that could hurt him a little bit going into his first year but we saw what he did at ohio state now he inherited a lot of talent at ohio state that's he's not going to have jeff okuda he's not going to have damon arnett he's not going to have sean wade he's not going to have jordan fuller at boston college those caliber of players just aren't going to be there but 
we saw the transformation that some of those players made under Halfley's leadership. And you mentioned just how much they rave about him. It was so evident. Jeff Okuda said that Jeff Halfley changed his life. And we know how talented Jeff Okuda was. But it was so evident that Jeff Halfley just found a way to connect with these guys and to take their games to the next level. And that's why he's a head coach after just one year at Ohio State. Yeah, and he, he was born in New Jersey, went to Siena. He coached at Albany, Pitt, Rutgers. Like, he has this Northeast background. And if you look at, like, all right, so his, main, his, his entire college coaching career is in the Northeast and then one year at Ohio State. And if you're looking at, so if he stays at Ohio State one more year, like, the idea is, all right, maybe he can jump to an even bigger job than, than Boston College. But if the Northeast is his region, if that's where he has the most experience, there just aren't a ton of jobs there. Like I wrote down, here, here are really the only power conference jobs there. It's Syracuse. They have Dino Babers. They have, it's Rutgers, and they just hired Chiano. Like then you all of a sudden, like that's basically it. First off, from the Power Five, you have to get a little bit further. And it's like, all right, you're down into Pennsylvania, like Penn State. Like James Franklin just got an extension. Uh, there's Pitt. Uh, Pat Narduzzi is there right now, but it's like if you stay an extra year, is is waiting for the pit job great? Like I don't, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily worth it. I think if you want to go to the Northeast, I think the Boston College job makes sense from that regard. Yeah, I don't, I don't think. I, to me, Pitt and Boston College are comparable jobs. Syracuse and Boston College are comparable, comparable jobs. The only job you said there that's a clearly better job is Penn State, and yeah. you're not getting Penn State as the first first time head coach who's been a coordinator at Ohio State for one year. If you're going to go get Penn State, you got to go. You got to go build up somewhere else. Now, who knows? Maybe, maybe James Franklin leaves Penn State in a few years, and maybe Jeff Halfley's the next coach at Penn State. Who knows? But and, and by the way, that's what he's taking this job to do. He's taking this like. Let's be honest. Like he took the Ohio State job to parlay it into a head coaching job. He's taking this head coaching job to parlay into a better job. I mean, that's just how the world works. The the Boston College job is not the one he ultimately wants to end up at. He can say that right now, just like he said at Ohio State, that he's really happy to be coaching with Ryan Day. And it was true. I, he had a great year at Ohio State. And that proved it by him getting a whatever three or four time raise or whatever he's going to get at Boston College. Now he's a head coach. That That's just what, that's just what coaches do. Yeah, and I, and I think people got to understand, I've had a lot of people interacting with me in the days since Jeff Halfley's move to Boston College was announced, and a lot of the sentiment from Ohio State fans has been, why couldn't they wait until after the season? And the reality is they couldn't wait until after the season. That's not the way it works. With the early signing period, it's this week, and, and we're not, we're not going to be able to talk much about the early signing period today because we're recording before the early signing period starts, and by the time you're listening to it, most guys are already going to be signed, so it's kind of hard for us to talk about that on this episode of a show, but just in terms of why they needed to hire Jeff Halfley this week, you have a bunch of guys that are committed to your program signing on the dotted line on Wednesday, they need to know who their head coach is going to be. So so Boston College had to make a hire before this week. And I'm sure they told Jeff Halfley, we need you to make a decision by the end of last week because they, they, just, they just couldn't wait. So that's just the way it works. Clemson's in the same situation with Jeff Scott, their co-offensive coordinator, who 
spent last week at USF, and then he'll be back with the team later this week helping Clemson prepare, just like Jeff Halfley is already back at Ohio State helping them prepare. So it's just part of a business. It's the way things have to go. But the reality is you'll hear people say, how do you leave during a national championship run? How do you distract? Well, unless you're an Ohio State fan who's expecting that they're not going to be competing for a championship next year, it would have just been the same thing next year. So this was the opportunity that he felt was right for him. He went to go take it. And if you listen to what Ryan Day had to say on Monday, he wants to be in a position where his assistant coaches are doing so well that other programs want them. He recognizes that that is part of a business and that if you do well, if you're competing for championships, people are going to want your assistants to become head coaches. And this isn't the first time Ryan Day is going to have to deal with it. It is the first time, though, that he's going to have to show that he can go out and make a quick hire and rebuild without dropping off. And that's going to be the interesting thing to see play out here over the next few weeks. Yeah, it's um, it's one of the things that I wonder with Ryan Day where if you look at his first coaching staff, it just seems like he's really made strong hires. His inaugural coaching staff just across the board. I've seen Mike Yurcich is coaching a quarterback who's a 40-1 to in a touchdown-to-interception ratio. Uh, Jeff Halfley is so good that he got a head coaching job after one year. They're running a lot of what Greg Madison's defense is. Like, this is a lot of what the Greg Madison defense is. Um, he's had a huge impact on this. Al Washington, people rave about him. Uh, Matt Barnes has, has, has had moments in special teams where you uh, – you, you look at him and you think, wow, that's that's pretty impressive for, for a special teams coordinator. Um, but he's 40 years old. He spent two years as an assistant at Ohio State. He spent a couple more years in the NFL. The best college that he was at before Ohio State was Boston College. He's not somebody who, like Urban Meyer, has been a head coach before. Urban Meyer was 10 years older when he got the Ohio State job. He, he just has more – he had more experience than Ryan Day. Ryan Day's walking in here, I just wonder – how much depth he has in this coaching pool, like where he pulls guys from. I mean, he pulled he, – he's looked to the NFL at times. He's looked to college. He's, he's looked into past connections, and that's the number one thing when it comes to hiring assistant coaches. Like oftentimes, the vast majority of times, there are these little connections. And when you're 40, you, you, you don't have you – just, you just don't have that you, – you don't have as many connections like that when you're a first-time head coach. Yeah, it makes it a little tougher from our standpoint to predict who – the candidates for the job might be because and, and it's because I, I think it might be tougher for Ryan Day because it's, it's just it's smaller right know? there just aren't as many obvious candidates with obvious links to him because he hasn't been coaching as long he hasn't been a head coach for more than a year but the one name that has been floating around out there our Zach Carpenter heard from a source earlier this week that Ryan Day has been in communication with Kerry Combs multiple times about potentially coming back to Ohio State. If you're an Ohio State fan, you probably already know Gary Combs was the cornerbacks coach for Urban Meyer's first six years with the Buckeyes. He worked with Ryan Day in 2017. He's been the secondary coach of the Tennessee Titans for the past two years. I think Ryan Day would like to bring in another coach with NFL experience, and I think when you combine his NFL experience with what he's already proven he can do at the collegiate level, what he's already proven he can do both in developing first-round draft picks and in recruiting players of the talent to be first-round draft picks, 
There's a lot to like about the possibility of bringing Kerry Combs back if that is, in fact, something that Combs is interested in. Yeah, and we talked about Jeff Halfley walking into a room with incredible talent, and it stems back to him. I mean, he's, he's the guy that brought in Jeff Okuda and Sean Wade. He's the guy who brought in Amir Reap and Tyreek Johnson and some of these younger cornerbacks, Seven Banks and whatnot. Like, he's the guy who, who built this room into, into what it was and what it has been this year. Um, it would be hard for me to look at the potential of hiring Kerry Combs and think, eh, I don't know about that. Now, the interesting part about it is if they hired him, I imagine it would be as a co-defensive coordinator, and that's just that's different. He wasn't a, he wasn't a defensive coordinator at all at Ohio State. He was his last year. He was, or, he was yes. He was assistant defensive coordinator his last year, but it wasn't. I think he would have more responsibility yes, than exactly. he did. Yeah, he. I, I think that that is definitely the case. Um, I. I, I think it'd be a really good hire though. And and it's one of these it's one of the things that, that I really wanted to mention here because like when I look at it, like I think for almost anybody else, I think this would be a really tough job to walk into. There's just a lot of factors. Like one, you're gonna have to figure out a way to work with Greg Madison and Matt Barnes. Like that's that is a must. You have like Jeff Halfley did that really well. Someone whoever comes in would will have to do that too. And Ryan Day um, already said on Monday that the defensive scheme is not changing. He he had, he hadn't verbalized this before, but he did on Monday that the defensive scheme is the way he wants it. And so whoever comes in is not going to be able to change what the Buckeyes are doing. They have to come in, and if they're not already running the type of scheme that Ohio State is running now, they're going to have to adapt and not be every way around. So it, it'll, be, it'll be different for Combs because the scheme they're running now is different from the scheme Ohio State ran of Urban Meyer. So that would be one of my questions of Kerry mm-hmm. Combs. I think he could adapt because I think he's a really good defensive backs coach. So I think he could adapt. But that could eliminate some candidates too in terms of you've got to bring in somebody who who has been in a similar kind of scheme and is going to be able to adjust to the scheme that Ohio State runs now. Yep, and the other part, the other thing that I think makes this job a little sneaky difficult is the exact opposite of the is it's the exact opposite of the situation that Jeff Halfley walked into. Whoever is the new hire is going to replace four starters and four really high level starters. They're going to replace a top ten pick, a potential first round pick, a, a top three round corner, and a and a top four round safety. Like that is really difficult. And if you look at it. The guys who are going to replace them are not five-star recruits. I think Josh Proctor was a high four-star recruit. I think there's a lot of excitement on him. He might be the guy that I would be most confident in next year. But if you look at the cornerbacks, like Cam Brown was a was a four-star recruit, but he was a wide receiver when he came into Ohio State, and he'll be in his third year. Uh, Seven Banks is was, was another four-star recruit. He just doesn't have as much. He, he he's not that experienced. Tyreek Johnson, if he plays, he's barely played in his first. He two was years. a five-star. Recruit, he was, but he really hasn't seen the field. He hasn't. Um, Amir Reap, um, uh, I think he shined in the second half against Michigan, but he just isn't that experienced. Even though he's been in the program for a little while now, whoever comes in it has a has a pretty has a pretty difficult job, I think, figuring out both how they fit in schematically, how they fit in managing all of these players, and at the same time figuring out. Like, all right, here's my place in the coaching staff. Because I think that's just a, that's a lot for someone to balance. And it's why I come back to, all right, if Kerry Combs comes in, he's at least coached some of these guys before. He's recruited some of these guys before. Um, 
he might not have coached with some of these defensive coaches. I mean, I think there would be adjustments to some of the schemes and the teachings that he would have to do. But you know he's an elite recruiter, and you know he has these relationships with these players. And, and to me, that's that's what makes him a pretty attractive candidate. Yeah, I mean, if I was the new defensive backs coach coming in, the first thing I would do is try to beg Sean Wade to stay. I don't, <laughs> yes. I don't know if he'll be successful, but that's the first thing I would try to do because – and you wonder if Kerry Combs would be a little more successful in that. Yeah, and I think beyond that, too, I, I do think that would be a huge advantage to hiring Kerry Combs because you think about someone like a Seven Banks or a Cam Brown. They were recruited by Kerry Combs but were never coached by him, and they will now be going into their third season at Ohio State having been coached by a different defensive backs coach every single year. And, and that's hard on me, and that's hard on these guys. It's... You could tell talking to Seven Banks on Monday when he's meeting with media that it, it, this is disappointing for him to be going through this again. And Ryan Day said, "We're gonna." His quote was, "We're gonna go get the best coach in America." And if that means that it's another up-and-coming rising star who might only be at Ohio State for one or two years, he's willing to take that chance. But it is tough on a young player who who has to adjust to a new coach every year who feels like it, they have to prove themselves to a new coach and, and build brand new relationships every year. So that is going to be a tough job along with the fact that there's not much experience in that secondary, especially if we can assume Jeff Okuda is going to leave. Yes. If Sean Wade also leaves, they're going to be have a brand new starting lineup with not much experience. And, and that guy's got to come in, and he's got to be able to do the same thing Jeff Halfley did, and he's got to be able to build immediate relationships with these guys and get them to totally buy into playing for him. Because if not, the secondary has the potential to be a significant issue for Ohio State next year. Yep. You want to hit on these two questions from, from readers really quick? Yeah, we got our guests coming on in just a minute, but you guys were asked, who are some potential candidates to replace Halfley outside of Kerry Combs? I don't really know. We kind of we kind of talked about that. I, I don't I, I don't really know right now. That's the only name that really has a lot of smoke behind it right now. Chris Ash would have been a candidate most likely, but he became the defensive coordinator at Texas, so that's not going to happen. Then again, nobody predicted Jeff Halfley was going to be the new co-defensive coordinator and secondary coach a year ago. So I'd never heard of him. <laughs> the name could come out of left field. I wouldn't. I do think that there's a good chance it comes from the NFL. I know some names of guys that are in the NFL that have been thrown out there by some people. Jonathan Gannon, who's with the Colts. Aaron Glenn is a former NFL defensive back who I believe worked with Jeff Halfley in the NFL, and he, he's a guy whose name has been thrown out there. I wouldn't be surprised if he looks to the NFL ranks for his hire, but it's hard to predict exactly who it's going to be just because there's not as many ties there. Yeah, and whenever there's a co-defensive coordinator opening at Ohio State, Marcus Freeman's name also gets tossed out there. But, I mean, he's a guy who's way more experienced with linebackers than, than he is both with defensive backs and, and calling the calling coverages in the secondary. I, I don't necessarily think that he, he would be a fit in this exact position unless they lost down Washington, which is the next question. Yes, Chipperson1 asked us about a lot of questions about Halfley taking Al Washington to Boston College. Ryan Day said on Monday that he would be very, very surprised, that he would be shocked if Al Washington left for Boston College. So I don't know if he already knows something that we don't. 
it's possible maybe Al Washington could be in for a promotion to co-defensive coordinator, though I do think that Traub is probably going to go to the secondary coach at this point. I think he'll at least be in for a raise. Naturally, there was speculation about he could follow Halfley to Boston College because that is his alma mater. It could be an opportunity for him to go be a defensive coordinator for Jeff Halfley, but Ryan Day seemed very confident that Al Washington will be back, unless that was just a recruiting pitch to keep him around. He seemed very confident that Al Washington would be back, and for that matter, that all of his assistant coaches would be back next year. Yep. All right. You want to get into our interviews? I think we should. we got a couple guests coming on, so... Let's jump right into it. We are joined now on Real Pod Wednesdays by a guest that we've had requested many times, and we're finally making it happen here. Kyle Jones joining us now on Real Pod Wednesdays. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. It's good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to have you because we get a lot of questions about scheme, and a lot of times we have to tell people we're going to have to have Kyle Jones on to answer your question because... (laughs) Kyle is much more qualified than we are when it comes to X's and O's and getting into real specifics. So we have a few questions for you. So we'll only ask you a few of our own, and then we'll get into some of our reader questions. But just to kind of start off here, Ohio State is 13-0 this season. Of course, it's had a great year. We've seen a big turnaround on defense and the offense continuing to have success. But just from your vantage point, what are the biggest one or two things you think Ohio State has done schematic-wise this year that's led to so much success? Well, I think the the mixing and matching of zone defense and man defense, but all from the same structure, that, that single high safety, uh, mixing up those different looks to be less predictable from the offense's point of view, but keeping things very simple for the players. Um, I think that's been a huge, huge difference. Uh, it's allowed the guys to maintain much better tackling uh, angles. The way the linebackers are playing, their eyes are in the backfield. Uh, they're not as much as they're not as worried about uh, who do I have in man coverage the way they were in the past. Um, and I think the beauty of the system is, is truly if uh, the, you know, even with this look, even if they're in a, a quote unquote zone system, uh, if those, if there's three wideouts that run straight down the field or even a fourth in theory, there's, Still, Jeff Okuda, Damon Arnett, Sean Wade, Jordan Fuller are, are essentially playing man to man. It's a it's a zone defense with man technique. So you know, a lot of times you'll hear a, a, an announcer say, "Oh, look at look at Jeff Okuda and man to man." That was really a, a zone defense that just turns into man to man depending on the route. And so I think because of that, uh, because those they've got those studs on the back end, uh, it's really allowed the linebackers to play much more freely. Uh, they're allowed to just come straight ahead, keep their eyes in the backfield. Um, it helps that they've got a heck of a D-line. I, I, as much um, attention as Chase Young gets, I really think this entire defensive line is underrated if you look at the rest of those guys. And I think that you know, good players make coaches look really smart. And so not to say Jeff Halfley, Greg Madison, the rest of those guys haven't done a great job, um, but putting guys that are excellent, excellent football players in a position to use those skills – um, and not so easily be schemed out, if you will. So, you know, in the past, it was a little bit easier for someone to say, hey, Jeff Okuda's out on the edge there. I really don't want to work. I really don't want to throw at him. It's really easy to avoid doing that. Um, now it's a little bit harder to do so, just given the way that they're, they're playing. Um, if you don't want to throw at Jeff Okuda, that means you're not throwing to literally one side of the field. So, uh, you know, I think that it was just a structure that allows uh, the defense to take advantage of the talent they had at hand. Um, 
and I and credit to those coaches for putting him in the, that position. Ryan Day talked on Monday about how basically the core concepts of his defense that he wants to continue even with Jeff Hathley leaving as four down linemen, single high safety, and then mixing both cover one and cover three. Could you just first of all just kind of explain to our listeners those cover one, cover three concepts, what each of those are and why it's so important for the Buckeyes to have both of those within their defense? Yeah, so that's a great question. And and they really are very similar. And um, like I was starting to say, what what it look what it really means is you're playing a four three defense like everyone's seen if you you know if you've been watching football in the for the last 30, 40, 50 years, it's the same four three defense. Um, it might be slightly tilted in one direction, so you've got a tackle that's in the B gap to one side and an A gap to the other. But other than that, you got a strong side, a middle, a weak side linebacker, so now that changes. You've got a free safety in the middle of the field. That's Jordan Fuller. We all know that. you got two quarterbacks who are on, on the edge, Damon Arnett and uh, Jeff Okuda. And then the really interesting, the two most interesting players, really the fulcrums of this whole unit, are Sean Wade and Pete Werner. And so what's unique about this system is those guys are effectively interchangeable. You know, the, this defense is not a split field where they're playing, you know, what TCU made famous, where you play one coverage on one side of the field and a different coverage on the on the other. This is, we're going to play a pretty straight up system. Um, what you see with spread football these days is you see a lot of three wide receiver sets, which often means two receivers are to one side and a tight end and a, the other receiver are to the other. Well, it's pretty easy for Ohio State. What that means is Sean Wade's lining up to the other side or to the side with two receivers in the slot. Pete Werner to the side of tight end. If no matter which they're playing, cover one or cover three, all that means is either is there one deep zone and that's cover one, that's a man coverage, and cover three is there's three deep zones, um, and that's the zone coverage, if you will. If all if the all four of those receivers I mentioned, all three of the receivers and the tight end all run straight downfield, what's going to happen is Pete Werner's going to run with the tight end, Sean Wayne's going to run with the slot, Okuda and Arnett with the outside guys, and Sean Wade's sitting right in the middle of the field. Looks exactly that way. If you run cover three, it's what they call match. So this is match is, is similar to the way um, you would cover in basketball. But instead of playing true man-to-man where in a pick and roll where, you know, I might have to fight through and, and get over the top, you play basketball, you, you go to the Y, you go to the rec center, you play Y, you get in a pick and roll, what do you do? You switch, right? This, you know, I'm going to take the guy on the left, you take the guy on the right, we just switch assignments and, and move on. Uh, maybe we recover later on, but that's essentially what they're doing. So if the, you know, that number, that, slot receiver runs over the middle with right into the middle linebacker Malik Harrison or something like that they switch it's pretty easy if um the the two outside receivers cross pads really easily trying to set a pick Jeff Okuda takes the outside receiver Sean Wade takes the inside receiver and that's the zone that's the cover three um but the reality is is they're able to mix that up because if you're playing straight man the way the Buckeyes had with Greg Schiano for the last couple of years, it was really easy to set those picks. It was really easy to make sure that, hey, I'm going to motion out the tight end so that Pete Werner and Malik Harrison's standing way out by the sideline because he just followed the tight end of the running back, and now he's completely removed from the play. And you saw Maryland do that really, really well last year where they just completely dictated the flow of where all of Ohio State's defenders were lining up and all of a sudden tough Borland's lining up outside of a slot receiver because the running back motioned out and Damon Arnett is expected to fill the B gap as a run defender. That's not a great solution for Ohio state. Now what's happened is 
when they motion, they can switch into zone and they're able to trade responsibilities really easily. But what that means is Pete Werner's always playing kind of in the alley on the seams. Sean Wade's always playing in the alley or the seams. Blake Harrison and Tuff Borland or Brad Browning, depending who's in the game, are always in the middle of the field. And those guys are able to kind of play those areas and feel really comfortable regardless of whether it's man or zone. So that's really the, ver- the, the beauty of the system. And Ryan Day talked about that today where, you know, this is something that they've been doing with Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll's been doing this in Seattle for a decade. Um, the Legion of Boom was built on this this philosophy of it looks like cover three, but it's kind of man. And so if you really want to get cute and take advantage you know, they've got answers for both. So they can play both zone and man. And um, the really effective part about it is you're really playing with eight defenders in the box to, to fill the run, which is you ask any defensive coordinator, would you rather play two deep safeties where you've got seven guys in the box or one deep safety with eight? And if they're playing a good running team, they're all going to say, I want eight guys in the box just because it's a lot easier to fill that extra gap. And that's really why Ryan Day, I believe, wanted this system in place because um, you know, he said, uh, again, in this press conference, how difficult it was as an offensive coordinator to scheme for this kind of look, because even though it's very simple, it's really difficult to, to uh, find the seams and, and really take advantage of. Tom, glad that you brought up Sean Wade and Pete Warner, because like, if, if people think about the Ohio State defense, obviously Chase Young and Jeff Okuda are the guys that come to mind. But if you think about like who are the most valuable guys like it seems like those two you could make a strong argument for. So I wonder, like when you look at the future of Ohio State's defense, Ryan Day said that this is this is how he wants to play it, but Sean Wade and Pete Warner won't be there forever. Is like are those two positions that that, that sort of nickelback slot corner and, and the and the strong side linebacker, like how, how important are, are developing guys to to be the net Sean Wade and Pete Warner in this defense? Like it does it come down to whether they can whether they have guys you can play there um, uh, to, to, to see if Ohio State can actually continue to, to continue to play this defense? Yeah, but that's not a problem unique to Ohio State. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you look across the, you know, you cross, look, look across the sport, both college and NFL, those guys that can, you know, those hybrid defenders that may not be the prototype Mike or a prototype, uh, you know, outside corner that can just play shut down man-to-man, but those guys that can cover a slot receiver, they can fill in the run, they can play free safety when you want. You know, those guys are actually the most valuable parts of any defense. And I think if you want to look for an example, look at what Clemson's doing. Isaiah Simmons is a freak for what he's able to do. And, you know, he does all the things that Pete Werner's done. And, and Pete Werner's an excellent player, don't get me wrong. Isaiah Simmons is, play, is at another planet when it comes to doing this stuff. He will line up at free safety one play. He will line up... You know, in the inside linebacker, he will rush the passer from the slot, from the middle. Like, that dude unlocks so many different things the same way that Pete Werner does for Ohio State. Um, and so I think the the point is, it's really easy to go find a guy that can just line up and rush the passer from a defensive end spot. That's actually not that hard to find just because every defense in, in the country is running, you know, is running something that, that'll have a guy like that. What's hard to find is that, you know, that guy that might be a little bit undersized to be an all, a full-time defensive lineman. He's He's got, you know, doesn't have the speed to play outside corner. He doesn't quite have the range to play free safety. Maybe the size to play inside linebacker. But, you know, he does all those things pretty well. And that's what you want from a hybrid player. So, I mean, Mika Fitzpatrick was that guy for Nick Saban at Alabama for a few years. And, you know, I think it came out in the draft process that Saban said he was the best player he's ever coached or the best defensive back he's ever coached simply because he could do everything. And so 
it's a much larger question. It's a really good one because I think it people put an onus on the Chase Youngs, the Jordan or the Jeff Okudas, even a Jordan Fuller for very understandable reasons. But you know, you look at Ohio State's 2014 team. Who was arguably the most valuable player of that defense? It was probably Darren Lee. Because Darren Lee could play inside, he could play inside the box and, and fill the B gap as a run defender. He'd go out and play in the slot and, and to blow up bubble screens. He could run up the field with you know and, and play play zone coverage. So I, I think that having those kind of players are obviously not easy to find. But you know I I, I guarantee that's got to be a, a huge uh, focus as you know for Ryan Day, Mark Pantoni, all those guys. Who's somebody that we can just put out in space and you know it's kind of a coaching cliche, but just be a football player. You know who can who can play man coverage one play and play inside linebacker the next. So yeah, I think that's going to be a huge onus for for this team moving forward. Obviously, going into this season, we thought Brendan White was going to be one of those hybrid players that was going to play such a key role in Ohio State's defense. What do you think happened there where he just didn't end up finding a role, and obviously this past week decided to enter the transfer portal? That's I mean that's a really great question and one that's hard for me to say. For sure, but um, I think what the way that they used uh, Brendan last year, it it was kind of a band aid solution where uh, you know teams were effectively you know like I was saying teams like Maryland for instance would or Nebraska did a great job of this where they would use motion and formations to pull Malik Harrison um, or you know or even Tough Borland out of the box, leaving Brendan White essentially playing inside linebacker, and I think he was. He was admirable in that, but I think when they looked at what the options were and said, "Hey, Pete Werner's probably he's better at filling that exact role." Pete Werner was probably playing a little bit out of position, or they weren't using him properly. I guess I would say just you know having them stand out in the alley every time. Um, now I think that this system is a little bit more focused and, and clear about what they're expecting from guys, um, and I, and it just seems like you know Brendan just didn't have what it took to to outplay Pete Werner and. I don't think that that's a knock on Brendan White. I think that we should all remember that, you know, like you said, Cog, P. Wurz, heck of a player, and and maybe one of, if not the most important players on this defense. Let's get into some of our reader questions that we have here because we have a lot of them, and a lot of them are about Clemson, which we wanted to talk to you about <laughs> as well. Uh, and you know, really, the first question that we have here comes from Whiskey Juice, which is All right. an interesting name. So Ramsey. Okay. Good to hear. <laughs> so his question is, it would seem that the talent on both sides of this matchup is fairly equal. So how much do you think scheme plays a, is going to play a part in this game versus just flat out executing basic fundamentals? So I think scheme is actually going to be a pretty small part of it. I think there will be moments, especially on third downs for both sides, uh, where that's going to be big. Ohio State, how do they rush the pass? Or how do you create um, stunts and other looks that, you know, showing pressure from six and only sending four? Uh, what, which four is it going to be? Um, you know, that's something Clemson struggled with a little bit. Uh, the same for Ohio State. How is Clemson going to line up? And what are the looks are they going to show? How are they going to try to confuse Justin Fields? But I think ultimately, you know, first downs are not going to be dictated by scheme. This is going to be winning individual battles it's going to be jeff okuda versus t higgins it's going to be you know chase young versus jackson carmen it's going to be all these guys and the difference to me though is not going to be those marquee names um you know you can go down the list and say 
Trevor Lawrence, Justin Field, J.K. Dobbins, Travis Etienne, and uh, Higgins and Ross versus uh, Okuda and Wade and uh, Isaiah Simmons and Malik Harrison. And, and you can start to play that game and kind of say, like, all right, well, let's check, check, check across the board. Where I think it starts to get really interesting is you say, all right, Davin Hamilton, is he better than the guy across from him? Is Pete Werner better than the guy across from him? And that's where I start to see a little bit more of the difference between these two teams. I watched four of the games that admittedly have not, you know, I'm sure there's some Clemson people that are going to say, oh, but you missed this and this, and that's probably true. Um, not claiming to be a Clemson expert, but, you know, you can see teams getting penetration on the against the right guard and against the center on every play. That's a spot where Ohio State's got a strength. Devin Hamilton, Jay Sean Cornell, those guys are going to have the opportunity to make plays. And if they do, that's a really big difference in this game because I'm not sure that outside of Simmons on defense, Clemson has quite the same amount of horses that Ohio State does. And I think that's when you start to say, like, is the 10th best player on, on these two teams? Who's got the 10th best? Who's got the 14th best, the 20th best? And that's where I think the difference in talent. And, and to me, Ohio State's a little bit deeper. This is very similar to the Alabama matchup in 2014 where very similar. You had top, top, top in talent that could match, but it was – you know, guys like Michael Bennett making big plays. Um, it was, you know, Curtis Grant making a big stop. It was Tyvis Powell making a big play. And and that's where I think this game is going to make the difference is those guys that maybe weren't, you know, heralded as All-Americans, but were solid players in their own right. I think K.J. Hill is going to have a huge, huge game. I think he's going to have to. But maybe not with catching a long bomb, just you know, working in the slot, finding a way to get nine yards here, 13 yards there, seven yards here. And I think that's the difference between these two teams. To, to Obviously. Up, go go ahead, Colin. I just want to follow up on that real quick because you had mentioned the um, Chase Young, Jets, and Carmen matchup. But I also know that in your film study article on Monday, you had, you'd written about the need to, to move Chase Young around a little bit just to um, whether it be throw Clemson off or figure out a way for him to get pressure elsewhere. I just wonder... Like when you when you refer to move him around, like what types of movement are you talking about? How frequently do you think that they should do that, and and do you think that they've done that enough in the, in the past few games? So I think they've tried. Um, I think you saw in the Big Ten title game. There's one play in particular I remember where um, Wisconsin was driving. It was after one of the fumbles, and Wisconsin's driving, and Cornell kind of stood up and made one of those fifth year senior plays on a running play just absolutely mauled the left guard and made a stop on Jonathan Taylor, setting up a big third down. Well, on third down, Ohio State comes out and they're kind of new rush men, which they haven't really, you know, branded quite the same way they have in the past. But, um, you know, they got three ends on the field now that Tyreek Smith's healthy. So it's Smith, Zach Harrison, Chase, and Jayshon Cornell. And then they've got a linebacker, Baron Browning, and Malik Harrison. And on every one of these plays – they're putting those two linebackers up on the line in one of the gaps. And they are showing six guys on the line, but they're not sending six. Maybe they're dropping Harrison into coverage or Smith into coverage and bringing one of the linebackers. Maybe they're dropping somebody else. But what what the, the real key is, is Chase is moving on every single play. So, you know, this play that I'm t- I, rem- I remember, I remember it vividly because they lined up Chase Young at defensive tackle. and He's lined up in the A-gap between the center and the guard. And you can see is the second the center snaps, he doesn't even pay attention to the eight, to the to hit the gap on his left side. He is going right to help Chase, you know help the right guard with Chase Young, and Jayshon Cornell just darts right through that gap and come get you know blows up the play for a sack. 
you know, it was one of these things where that the left guard had no prayer against Jay Sean Cornell, and he also had no help. Now, Chase Young, out of the story after the game is, oh, why does he make plays? Well, that's a play. You know, and I think that's the, those are the kinds of things where I'm talking about where, you know, move Chase Young, and if you're going, I think Ryan Day even mentioned this today in his presser, where if you're going to decide I'm going to have to have two of my guys block Chase Young, well, that means there's one-on-one matchups all over the rest of that line. It can those can the rest of those guys take advantage of it? So that's one where you move Chase and you put him in the A gaps over the middle of her center and guard. And I can tell you, if you put him over Clemson center and right guard, that is a problem. That is a problem that Clemson does not want to have to solve because they they're going to have to put more than maybe those two guys against him because he's better than both of them by a long shot. But you know, the other thing they did against Wisconsin in the first matchup was they played this three three five nickel look where they had I believe it was Tyreek. Smith, uh, Zach, and then maybe David Hamilton was at the nose guard. And Chase was actually a stand-up linebacker along with uh, Harrison and Browning. And so, you know, he wasn't even lining up in one gap before the play. He's moving all over the place. He's he's walking up in the A gap to one side. He's quickly slipping over to the B gap to the other side. You know, and, and so knowing that these offenses, every time before they snap the ball, they are keying their entire protection scheme around where he's going. Well, don't just line him up and let him climb, let, let him you know decide where that's going to be. Don't just line him up across from the left tackle. Move him all over the place. Make them, you know, less so of even like they might be able to get to chase, but that's going to open up windows for Tyreek Smith, for Zach Harrison, for Cornell Hamilton, all the rest of these guys, even Browning and Harrison on the blitz. They're going to have matchups and opportunities to go make plays just because of the magnet that Chase Young has become couple of our questions are about how Clemson could scheme up defensively with Ohio State's offense. I survived. Cooper asked us about who... <laughs> Great name, who, by the way. <laughs> basically, who will win the chess match between Day and Venables? A- AZ Buckeye 13 asks, does Clemson depend on one type of base defense, or do they give multiple looks? So when you look at Clemson's defensive scheme versus Ohio State's offensive scheme, just what what kind of matchups do you see there, and what kind of things do you think maybe Ohio State can do against what what Clemson does? So I, I this has been – I remember saying this before um, the last time Ohio State made the playoffs – well, getting to watch film on these other three teams is like a Christmas present for me uh, because getting to watch what Brett Venables has done with that defense is incredible schematically. I mean, he is lining up in a different look every play, and Simmons allows him to do it. You know, they're playing um, this kind of Iowa State three safety look that I, I remember writing an article about it uh, in the off season because I saw Iowa State did it, Texas had done a little bit, and all of our all of our readers said, "Oh, that'll never work." And, a major conference, the Big 12 is a you know, garbage conference and this and that. Well, Clemson's running it. They obviously saw some value in it. And Isaiah Simmons is playing this kind of hybrid safety linebacker role in the middle of the field where he can just basically run to the ball carrier unblocked. So that's going to be a problem Ohio State's going to have to deal with. But, you know, on one first down, they might show up with four down linemen and a traditional 4-3 set. The next, it's a 3-2-6 a where they've only got three, you know, three down linemen. Then they might have kind of a four, two, seven, you know, four, two, five. You know, they they are not leaning on one single defense for the same kind of reasons we talked about with Pete Werner, which are Simmons allows them to do whatever. He can basically be 
oh, we need to have, you know, some people out here to the slot. Great. I'll line up in the slot. You need me to line up as an inside linebacker. I can be an inside linebacker. You want me to play defensive end this play? Great. So they can do all this without having to substitute. They're just showing different looks. Where I think the big difference is between this Clemson team and the Clemson teams of the past is that defensive line. Um, everyone knows how good that defensive line had been. Um, you know, they had, what, four All-Americans over the last couple of years with, you know, Wilkins and Lawrence and Farrell. And, and you know, there are so, much, so many great players up front that they could just kind of let those guys make plays and just play a little conservatively in the back knowing that those guys are probably going to get home. They don't have that luxury anymore. And, you know, I think what we will probably see early on is it's not actually going to be a schematic battle with Ohio State running all kinds of trick plays. I think Ohio State's going to line up and try to knock the snot out of them off the line. I think I really think that you're going to see, for all those people that love seeing Wyatt Davis just absolutely maul people and same for Josh Myers, I think Ohio State would love for that to be this game. And even if that means it's a 24-21 game in the fourth quarter, I think Ryan Day would probably take that because he knows I, by the fourth quarter, those smaller Clemson D, you know, D line and those smaller linebackers, all these safeties that have to come up and play in the run game, they're not going to want to get hit by Brandon Bowen for the 12th time. They're not going to want to take on Wyatt Davis for the 15th time. They're going to get tired of it. They're not going to want to bounce off J.K. Dobbins. So, you know, I actually think this is going to be a fairly, you know, vanilla almost game plan from Ohio State where you're going to see a lot of J.K. Dobbins you're going to see a lot of, uh, you know, maybe even under center look, a lot of two tight end looks. And then you're going to see when those when Clemson feels like, okay, we cannot stop the run with this kind of cutesy three, two, six look. You're going to see Justin Fields take shots downfield. And that's where you see Chris Olave try to get behind that defense. So, you know, it's not the most exciting schematically, for at least from an Ohio State perspective. But I think if you're an Ohio State fan, you want this to be old school Big Ten snot rocking football. So that ties in really well to our next question. Vinton County Buck asked, do you think the Buckeyes should come out and play fast? Or do you are you looking at more of a methodical, slower-paced offensive game here trying to keep Clemson's offense off the field? Well, I think the pace is going to be dictated in game. Day has been very good since he, since he came to Ohio State. He and Kevin Wilson done a great job of varying the tempo. Um, you know, I know a lot of fans get real upset with the rush to the line, then took, you know, the check with me offensive, then effectively Ryan day makes the play call from the sideline after he sees how the defense is going to line up. But, you know, I, I think that's a great thing. You know, I think that there's uh, a lot of advantages for Ohio state there. The difference is Brent Venables. If you come up and do that with him, he's also going to make a call. Cause now you're letting him make that. And he's good enough to be able to adjust. Whereas not all the defenses that Ohio state's played this year have, someone who's capable of being that kind of counterpart today. So I think you're going to see a lot of varied tempo. I think you might see, especially after um, Ohio State picks up a first down, rush to the line, get up there, and especially try to run the ball and just pound the ball before they can get lined up. And, um, you know, that's a little bit – that's going to wear them down. But, uh, you know, especially as the flow of the game, if Ohio State's having trouble sustaining long drives, yeah, you're going to see Ohio State kind of take the air out of the ball, take the time give that defense a rest uh, because yeah, I, I, if they start to run the ball very fast, you're going to see some drives where I, I can see them rush to the line, especially Dave's done a great job in the past. Of, it seems like when Ohio state crosses midfield, all of a sudden the pace picks up, you know, he pick up a couple first downs and all of a sudden rush the line, go rush the line, go rush the line, go, especially when it's Dobbins running downhill over and over again, no defense wants to give up a big run, 
trot back to the huddle, get lined up, and immediately, you know, you're just doing that over and over again. That's not only, you know, great from a yards given up perspective, but it's demoralizing for that defense as well. So, yeah, I think that the pace is going to definitely be dictated by the, the course of the game, but I think you'll see a wide variety of it. How do you see, this is a question from Kahimar, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, what tools do the Buckeyes have in their toolkit to keep Clemson's defense from selling out against the run? And put another way, how do you see Ohio State scheming successfully against Clemson's defense in passing situations? Well, so those are two very different questions, I would say. Um, and those are both good ones, though. Is I think to keep Ohio State, to keep Clemson from overloading against the run, you know, Clemson's got to prove that they're willing to overload against the run. I think um, they just have not at any point this year, even, you know, part of it is the schedule they've played. They just aren't a team that's going to put, you know, a 4-4 defense in the, you know, in the box the way that um, Ohio State has. I think they're much more willing to say, let the ball spill outside and let our athletes make plays in space. We would much rather have those five guys those you know, three down linemen and two inside linebackers just fill all the inside gaps, push the ball to the edges, and then let freaks like Simmons just run to the football and make a tackle before you turn the corner. Um, if that's the case, I think Ohio State's willing to say, great, you can keep all those guys away from the ball, and we're just going to pound you, pound you, pound you, and force Clemson to change, change that. When that happens, that's K.J. Hill time. That is wide receiver screen. It's also a lot of, um, you know, that's why I can see them, obviously Ohio State going under center and being able to, to use the rollout game. Since Fields uh, hurt his knee late in the season, I think you saw less and less of it. But for the first two months of the season, you know, it was, you know, fake handoff, roll to the right, hit a comeback route along the sideline to Chris Olave or Austin Mack or one of those guys. I think that becomes a big part of the offense again because now you're basically saying, I'm going to put Mack or Olave out on an island against your corner and we're pretty sure he's going to win that one-on-one battle and you know fields can deliver the ball there quick and on time so i think you'll start to see some of that in those early downs and um you know that's why i said it all comes down to can ohio state just make this a physical pounding game because clemson doesn't want to line up with all those guys interior on the interior they want to stay spread out and play this big umbrella coverage and just run to the football which makes those third downs so important if ohio state is stuck in third and long that's going to be tough. That's going to be real tough. But I think what you're going to see is, you know, how are you, can you scheme up getting somebody like Olave or KJ Hill lined up against their safeties? Um, Simmons for as great as an athlete is and as versatile is, you know, if this is Chris Olave running versus Isaiah Simmons down the seam, that's a match of Ohio State wants. You know, that's a, you know, the ball can get there accurately. Ohio State's going to win that matchup. Olave is just a better downfield receiver than, than Simmons is as a cover man. And so they've got some other safeties that are big athletes that are that look great coming off the bus. They've given up some big plays here and there. They're not as great in space as they might lead you to believe. And I think Ohio State's going to look for ways to isolate their receivers um, on those guy on those interior defenders instead of saying, oh, we just want, you know, Chris Olave running a streak down the right sideline against their quarters. Obstacle 22 asked us, do you think the secondary is good enough for the front seven to be aggressive at getting to Trevor Lawrence? Do you think Ohio State is going to have to play more man coverage 
to get pressure on Trevor Lawrence? So I don't think they're going to have to play more man pressure to get pressure or to get more. I'm sorry. They're not going to have to play more man coverage to get pressure on Trevor Lawrence. I think they're going to have to play more man coverage simply because of the number of RPOs and options that Clemson runs. Um, I think that Clemson's done a really good job of taking advantage of teams that want to start playing zone. Um, they believe that, hey, we can put you in matchups that our guys uh, can win. You know, there's an old saying that coaches have, which is if you play zone, we're betting that the quarterback can't beat you. If we're playing man, we're betting that our guys are better than your guys. And Trevor Lawrence is too good to just simply say, we're going to play zone and we don't think he can beat us. He's he's going to beat you if you just sit in zone. So they're going to have to play man and bet that, hey, Jeff Okuda can run with T. Higgins and Sean Wade and Darryman Arnett can run with Justin Ross. And Malik Harrison can trail Travis Etienne out of the backfield. You know, th- those are the bets that Ohio State has to make. Uh, because I think if you just kind of sit back and say, Trevor Lawrence can't find the seams or these receivers, you know, we can keep everything in front of us. You know, there's going to be a mix, but I, I think we're going to see a lot more man than we're used to. We'll follow up on that real quick. What, what do you think should be the biggest concern about facing Trevor Lawrence in this wide receiver core? Because if you just look at who Ohio State has faced this year, I mean, they really just – they haven't faced anything like the, these weapons that they're going to go against. Well, I don't think anybody outside the ACC has faced any of these weapons. You know, uh, you know, maybe the four playoff teams have just, you know, it's crazy to say this, but Ohio State's passing game, as good as it's been, is nowhere, you know, it's it's easily in last place of the four playoff teams um, in terms of, di- you know, how dynamic they have from at, at the playmaker position, uh, you know, from wide receiver. All three of the other teams are just, absolutely loaded and then you have alabama who's not even here so this is just kind of a freaky class for playmakers and as good as quintez cephas and some of the michigan receivers have been yeah this isn't this is a completely new test um and the difference between what ohio state fans have seen is you know baker mayfield and oklahoma's offense came to the shoe a couple years ago and really just out schemed greg Schiano. baker made a ton of great throws but that was really, they just got out schemed. I, I don't think that you can honestly say that Ohio State was outmanned by Oklahoma, especially Ohio State's defense that year versus the Oklahoma offense. There were some good players on both sides, but, you know, it, to a man, it wasn't, you know, a super clear, oh my gosh, look at these freaks everywhere. This is different. And I think, especially at the skill positions. And so, uh, yeah, this is going to be a test that. Jeff Okuda, you know, this is really, you know, man up time for, for those secondary players. And they have to keep Lawrence in a muddy pocket. If he gets a clean pocket, he's too good. You know, he's, he's going to make these throws. He's going to put it on the money. He's been doing it all year. I know he threw some picks early in the season when he was trying a little bit too hard. But that was also when teams were getting pressure on him. So, uh, you know, it's going to be absolutely critical for Ohio State to get pressure on, on Lawrence, force him into some throws, um, keep Etienne as a blocker, not as a receiver, because that's a big, big difference when they have to keep him in and they can't make him another playmaker. They really rely heavily on those top three guys. I mean, those are the top three receivers. Those are their top three guys in touches, and it's a pretty big drop-off. You know, the tight end's not a big weapon in the passing game. Amari Rogers, the third receiver, you know, doesn't have a ton of catches. I think it's like 21 catches all year, you know, for 300 yards. So, again, not a big-time playmaker there. You know, capable, but just doesn't see the ball. They rely so heavily on, on Lawrence getting the ball to Higgins, Ross, and at the end. And that's that's really their game plan. 
I think Kyle's dog is getting ready for us to, to wrap this up. So just a couple quick questions for you. Silver Sniper asked us this question a couple weeks ago, and we told him we'd have you on to answer it. He wanted to know what happened to the mesh routes and fake crossing routes Ryan Day used to smoke Michigan. He thinks that type of quick strike concept would be perfect for avoiding some of the issues they've had with sacks. What's, what's your thought on that, Kyle? So that's been a really interesting, uh, you know, development in the Ohio State offense. I think it's just, you know, Ryan Day made a living off. He said at the clinic, I always have crossers. I always, and I think they're probably in the playbook, but I think people are looking for them, which is why they don't run them very often. Um, I think you saw a really nice, they did a really nice job kind of creating a version of it in the Michigan game where um, Garrett Wilson had a big crossing route uh, that was created by essentially the same kind of action where, Dobbins is running a wheel route, which is always the first option in that play. You know, as much as they were always hitting those crosses, the first option was always Dobbins or, or Michael Weber or, or one of the other backs just releasing on a wheel route from the backfield. Um, and so they, they have that wheel route, create a pick route, you know, create a pick between Khalid Hudson. I can't remember what the other Michigan defender was. And there goes Garrett Wilson streaking right across the middle of the field. So I think he's evolved the concept um, because he knows everyone's looking for it. Uh, they ran at play ad nauseum with jk dot or i'm sorry jt barrett two years ago as well so you know that that was kind of the key foundational play that everyone practices when you play ohio state and that's fine you know they've really changed what the offense is now it's much more under center it's uh double tight ends and that's really not a play you want to run when you're running a look like that that's definitely more of a traditional spread look which the team was um under Dwayne haskins so yeah, I think that they're just kind of days using that to his advantage and saying he knows everyone's looking for it, so I'm not going to run it. Last question for you from Aker KM1. Who's your X factor for this game between Ohio State and Clemson? The defensive tackles for Ohio State. I think that if they can get penetration through the middle, that changes the whole game because now Trevor Lawrence isn't comfortable. The running game doesn't get going. You know, Etienne's got guys that he's got to run around um if ohio state can if those defensive tackles are in the backfield ohio state wins this game if they're not making plays you're not hearing 53 and 9 you're not seeing you know kirk curb street circling them on the replay and saying oh even though i didn't make the play you know make the tackle they made the play if you're not seeing those tackles i just i really have trouble seeing ohio state win this game let me, let me follow up on that real quick because I just want to ask this one question. You said that you watched, um, I think it was four games of Clemson. So did you feel better or worse about Ohio State's chances after watching those? <laughs> um, about the same, but I had to come around on it. Let's put it that way. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think I came in like everybody else thinking, well, Clemson just, yeah, they're top-heavy, but, uh, you know, I haven't really played anybody and turned on the tape and went, holy smokes, their skill players are just on another level than anything Ohio State's seen. But Ohio State's got, that's what I think people say about Ohio State. And so I think it kind of took me a while to say, okay, I must have seen some things too as well, some of those issues with stopping the run, with uh, you know being able to keep penetration out of the middle, you know the, the interior line giving up uh, penetration, things like that. And even in the, 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 the ACC championship game, even in the South Carolina game, you're seeing some of those same problems. So, um, 
you know, that makes me think, you know what, these are not just blips. Those are, those are trends that Ohio state's going to have to latch onto and try to take advantage of. So certainly not going to be easy. I think this game is going to be potentially game of the year material, just because it's going to be a slugfest. Um, the more that it's skill and air it out, the less I think Ohio state likes its chances, the more that it's just a, a boxing match and just fist fights in this, along the line of scrimmage, Ohio state's got a better chance. Awesome, awesome stuff from you, Kyle. We're definitely going to have to have you back on the show. Thanks for hanging on with us and answering all the questions from our readers. I know they really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on. All right, for our guest of today's Real Pod Wednesdays, we're welcoming in Brad Sengiv, who I used to work with on the Clemson Beat, and he's now a host at 105.5 Varor, the flagship station of Clemson Athletics. Brad, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, it does. My pleasure. Glad to be here. This is a game that Ohio State fans know all too well about Clemson and the dominance that Clemson has had for the last five years. And, of course, what happened in 2016, an infamous game. Clemson fans love to talk about it. Ohio State fans don't like to hear about it. But just looking at this team this year, how do you think this team and this matchup stacks up to what we saw three years ago? Well, obviously, I think Ohio State is very different. Uh, you know, Debra Sweeney talked about that. I couldn't agree with him more uh, when he said this is not the same team that Clemson played in, in 2016. I don't think this is the same Clemson team that Ohio State played in 2016. Much more dynamic offensively. I know maybe some people are like, wait a minute, that was Deshaun Watson. You see what he does for the Texans every week and how good he is. And, you know, they had Mike Williams and they had you know, a pretty high octane offensive attack there when they put up 31 points uh, in 2016. But this offense really takes it to another level. Uh, just playmakers at every level, at uh, every position. And it's multiple guys. It's not like there's just one guy you key in on. If you take him away, you just take your chances that others beat you. That's not how it works with this Clemson offense. And, you know, Dan, you, you've seen it evolve. You know, you were around back in, in 2015 with Tony Elliott, Jeff Scott, and Cubs, the coordinators. We're really just kind of getting started with this formerly run Chad Morris offense. And it has become so much more than what you saw in terms of the way they call plays and the way they handle situations. You know, Tony Elliott takes care of the run part of situations. Jeff Scott takes care of the passing part. They feel like they have an answer built into anything and everything they're going to see from a defense. And the way that Trevor Lawrence uh, has taken this offense to another level with his ability to both, you know, throw the ball, yes, he's got a cannon arm, he's very accurate. But what he does with his legs now is an added dimension uh, that I, I think has taken this offense to a place that I thought it was going to be. Now, it may not have gotten off to the greatest of starts early in the season, uh, but they have really figured themselves out. They have it on identity. They know what they want to do. And when you work in Travis Etienne running the football behind an experienced, big offensive front, and then you mix in the receiving core of T. Higgins and Justin Ross, uh, there's just so many different options. Clips can really do whatever it wants against so many opponents. When you, when you mention T. Higgins and Justin Ross, I do think it's interesting because when people talk about Ohio State, a lot of it is that Ohio State hasn't faced a, a, a wide receiving core and a quarterback quite like what they're going to face on December 28th. But I just wonder, from your perspective, having seen Clemson this year, do you think that they face really anything like 
what, what Ohio State's secondary is with, with what might be multiple first-round picks, and then also up front with, with, with a Chase Young-led passing pass rush? No, I, I don't think Clemson's faced anything like what Ohio State's going to bring. And that's the biggest challenge, I think, for Clemson is the first couple of minutes of that game, kind of, you know, filling that out and understanding uh, what they're seeing and some of the different schematic things. I, you, you talk about the Jimmys and Joes, other X's and O's, this important as well. You know, I think Ohio State is very well coached and it's going to bring a different look to what Trevor Lawrence has probably seen uh, recently as well. But, no, I think that, you know, Clemson's got their their work cut out for them, especially with that secondary. You know, Key Higgins and Justin Ross, they've done it at the highest level. You know, they may not have played a lot of competition this year, but they've, they were, they've been on the big stage before. They did it against Notre Dame last year. They did it against Alabama. I think Ohio State's better defensively than those two teams were that they faced a year ago. Uh, so I think there's going to be an adjustment to figure out for those receivers what they can and can't do. You know, they've played some defense, to be honest with you. They just had nobody over the top. They could, they could man the field. And Clemson would just beat teams by sending T. Higgins deep, and it made it very easy for uh, Trevor Lawrence to get the ball to him when he's facing, you know, bad coverage down down the field. So uh, I, I expect some schematic differences for Clemson just as much as the Jimmys and Joes. I uh, he's going to make this interesting. And I'm really not sure how Clemson's going to attack Chase Young. You know, I've had that question multiple times over the last couple weeks. Uh, it really don't need I, I would expect a lot of double teams. I think they'll try to chip him some. I would be concerned about the other guys when they're focusing so much on Chase Young. Uh, but Clemson's running backs are not great pass protectors. They're better than they used to be, but there's still something to be, there's some ways to be desired there. I think Ohio State might try to take advantage of Clemson's running backs trying to stay in there and protect Trevor Lawrence. Looking at some of the Clemson message boards, and even what some of the members in the media are writing from Clemson, it seems like Clemson people are, are very confident that the Tigers should win this game and, and maybe win it big again. But you know, to me on paper, it looks to be pretty much an evenly matched game. What's your perception on just kind of how this matchup should be perceived? And are, are Clemson fans maybe a little too overconfident going into this one? I think you could make that argument. Now, some of that is they've been there before, right? They've heard about this team being great or that team being great, and, and Clemson has had so much success five to ten good years making the college football playoff, winning two national teams in that, in that span. And if Clemson wins it again this year, that's three titles in five years. That surpasses what Alabama has done in the college football playoff era. So there's a reason for optimism and, you know, really a, a reason for fans to think that they're going to go in and continue to play well. The thing is, and I keep telling people, this is not 2016 Ohio State. Get that game out of your head. That means nothing when they take the field into Fiesta Bowl. Because that is Ohio State team is actually loaded from top to bottom. I just, it's hard to pinpoint a lot of weaknesses. There were some drastic weaknesses. There were some big, big holes in that Ohio State team in 2016. And I think starting at the quarterback position. Absolutely. I think Justin Fields is a fantastic player. His 50 touchdowns total to one interception ratio is unmatched and unbelievable. And I, I still get his get more attention for that nationally. But at the same time, Clemson just has a confidence about him because they, Clemson feels like they've been there before, right? LSU, this is their first time. First time Ohio State's been, been there under Ryan Day as the head coach. Uh, Oklahoma's been there, but, you know, they haven't, they haven't gotten out of the semifinal round yet. So nobody's taking them super seriously in this. In this, in this 14 playoff. But Clemson's a team that's been here, done that, knows how to do it, knows how to win. 
So, yeah, there is an air of confidence uh, that Clemson has, but I would not be overlooking Ohio State because I, I think these are, I agree with you, Ben, very, very evenly matched teams, and I expect the game to be played that way. It does feel like it's, it's like in my mind, like these are, I, I think these are the two most complete teams in the country, and I, I also think probably the two most just well rounded, talented teams. Um, when, when you look at Ohio State, though, I think there are maybe a couple things that you can nitpick. So, like, from your perspective, having seen Clemson, are there any, are there any two or three things that maybe, maybe they didn't cause a loss, but if you look at maybe, maybe, maybe that Ohio State will be able to, to take advantage? I think one of those is Clemson's defensive front. It's, you know, Clemson gets a lot of sacks they've generated a ton this year, but they haven't done it with their guys up front. Brent Venables, you know, last year had four NFL defensive linemen, so he played four down line and as many downs as he possibly could because that was the strength of the team. This year, the strength of the team is in the back seven, so the, they've gone more of a three-three-five kind of feel. It can rotate into a three-two. Six and just all, all kinds of different formations out of that, but they do not have the kind of NFL caliber power front that you just send after the quarterback and get a ton of pressure. They have to generate through a lot of blitzes and bring in extra guys, and that can create and open holes in certain parts of the field if you are sound in, in all your areas. Now, they've been able to get away with it because they have safeties who play like corners and linebackers who play like safeties. And just interchangeable parts. But at some point, you know, as the talent now increases and the stakes increase, I think there's some opportunities to, one, run the ball on Clemson's front. And that's what I would say the Ohio State can do, is use the, the read option and just absolutely try to pound the ball right at Clemson. Not a lot of teams have tried that this year. A couple of teams that are very run-heavy did. A team like Charlotte actually ran the ball fairly decently on Clemson. I want to see Ohio State do that first and first and foremost, and see how the Tigers react with their defensive front. Uh, offensively, you know, I think this offensive line is really good, it's really experienced, but I think there's some ways you can attack them. I, I've seen their their left their, their tackles and their guards at some at some time in parts of games have not been as dominant as you would think they would be. So I think there could be some advantage there with what uh, Ohio State does up front. You talked about Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne, T. Higgins, Justin Ross. Isaiah Simmons, of course, is the guy everybody knows on Clemson's defense, up for national awards. But who are some maybe under-the-radar Clemson players who aren't getting much national attention that people should know about going into this game? Well, Dan, I'll give you a guy on that defensive side that plays right beside Isaiah Simmons in a lot of formations. And that's Kayvon Wallace, a senior safety. Uh, you, you saw Kayvon, a tremendous football player, Kind of gets overlooked in this because of the, the amount of attention everybody else gets. Uh, but he is a guy who plays with a ton of passion, a ton of emotion. He's rounded into a guy who is extremely versatile. We talk about Isaiah Simmons' versatility all the time, but don't forget Kayvon Wallace. He can come down and play corner. He can play uh, somebody in the slot. Uh, he, he's nickel. He's safety. He, he goes like a linebacker sometimes. He really can rotate and do anything they need him to do. So that's one guy I certainly think probably deserves more recognition uh, than he is getting. And then the guy on the offensive side of the ball, that probably doesn't get a lot of love because we spend so much time talking about Justin Ross and T. Higgins. But Amari Rogers is a fantastic football player. He tore his ACL in March of this year, and he found a way to come back and play by the end of September during this season. And he's a guy that, that can return punts, 
lines up in the slot. They can use him in some different ways. And people kind of forget about him on the football field. He disappears. I say that. He just does some laughs in some games, and you wonder why he's not being utilized. But if you sleep on him, he's a guy who can catch a short six, seven, eight-yard pass and turn into a 30, 40-yard game. You have to keep an eye on Amari Rodgers. I'm interested to get your perspective. I remember from covering Clemson and interacting with Clemson fans that people down there hated Urban Meyer and they thought Urban Meyer was awful and Ohio State was awful. And then I come up here and people think Clemson is awful and they think Dabo Sweeney is awful. What's the perception down there of Ryan Day right now? What what do people in Clemson think right now about Ryan Day and Ohio State and their perception of this program going into this game? Well, I think a lot of people are surprised uh, that Ohio State actually looks, you know, better in, in some areas and, and more dominant in some ways than they did the last couple of years under Urban Meyer. So I think people are still kind of uh, kind of cautious about Ryan Day and trying to figure out exactly who he is. You know, I, I think a lot of fans see a, a young rookie head coach here who hasn't been through the battles, you know, hasn't, hasn't gone through the preparation that Dabo Sweet and his staff have uh, for the last, you know, previous four seasons, haven't had to get ready for all these big games. I think, I think a lot of people want to see if Ryan Day can step up to this kind of challenge and, and, and really be the guy who goes head-to-head with a guy like Dabo Sweeney. I personally think that this Ohio State team is, they have to say, a killer mentality that I didn't see on Urban Meyer. The, the times I've covered Ohio State and watched them over the years, and I think Ryan Day has such a good staff. You know, we, we talk about good Clemson staff all the time, and they're going to lose Jeff Scott, one of the coordinators. Office coordinators to USF. But everybody talk about the continuity on and how good Clemson staff is. I think Ohio State and Ryan Day put together an excellent staff. Of course, he's going to lose to some of these guys uh, as well because of the success that he's had. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. And I wanted to ask you about Jeff Scott as well because the big topic up here the last few days has been about Jeff Halfley leaving Ohio State to go to Boston College. And of course, Clemson dealing with the same thing with Jeff Scott. He's been at USF for a week. But coming back to help this team prepare, given the consistency that this Clemson team has had and in, in lack of turnover in its staff, do you think that creates any distraction at all or, or, or any problems for Clemson just having to deal with that? It's so hard to say because, like you said, Clemson hasn't had the problem. It's just not existent uh, you know, the last several years here during this run. They've lost a couple position coaches, uh, but they replaced those with pretty good, with pretty good coaches and just kind of but now to lose an offensive coordinator, a key cog in, in this wheel, we'll see. I mean, is it a distraction? Can it keep Clemson being focused? I, I don't think so because there's a lot of experience uh, in, in some key positions, especially on offense. You know, the receivers, to be honest with you, they didn't need a ton of coaching. You know, I mean, those guys are very, very talented. And Davos Slaney happens to be a wide receivers coach. That's how he got his start in college football. Uh, so I, I think he's enjoying kind of being hands-on with those guys while Jeff Scott's been down at USF. But uh, long-term, it may have some effects because Jeff Scott is an amazing recruiter. And really, really, uh, that's probably the main reason he got the job at USF is of what he could do in recruiting. Does it cost Clemson a guy or two in that area of the country? I think it possibly could. I think it opens up the door for, like, you know, for other teams like Florida and Florida State. Uh, maybe some you know, Georgia racing teams would come down to Florida and recruit as well. Uh, maybe cost him down the road, but I, going into this game, I, I don't see it being too much of a big deal for Clemson's offense because Tony Elliott is still there, and he's the game day game caller or play caller. Last question for you: 
just going into this game, what do you think is ultimately going to determine how this game plays out? And what do you think are the things that Clemson really has to do well in order to win this game? One of I mentioned earlier, Clemson has got to stop J.K. Dobbins and Justin Fields running the football. And, and by stop, I don't mean completely shut them down because I don't think they're going to be able to do that. But they've got to take away some of the effectiveness and keep Ohio State from using that run game to set up the deep pass. I think Justin Fields, one of the most impressive things I've seen out of him is he throws a great deep ball. And Clemson's got to be keep their eyes in the right place. And I think they're going to challenge the Tigers from that standpoint, not having guys over-pursue or over-play if that run game gets going. So a little bit of cat and mouse there uh, between Clemson's defense and Ohio State's offense. And the other one, I think Clemson's receivers got to go win some one-on-one battles. You know, I mean, they're, they're talented. They're, they've got all the accolades. You hear about their pedigrees. They look like the part. They've done it before. They've got to go win these battles against these NFL-talented uh, defensive backs. And if Clemson can do those two things, I think the Tigers are in pretty good shape uh, to advance and move on to the national championship game. If they can't, I think Ohio's chances are a lot uh, if they're able to uh, use that run game effectively instead of the pass especially. It's going to be a really good game, Brad. We, we really appreciate you taking some time. Give us some insight. We know our, our listeners appreciate it. So thanks again for joining us. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me. Two great interviews with Kyle and Brad. We thank both of them for joining us on this week's show. I, I think my big takeaway from hearing from both of them, Colin, is they both seem to think that Ohio State's got an opportunity to – control the run game and and to really if that offensive line can get after Clemson's defensive line that could potentially be an advantage that maybe swings this game in the Buckeyes favor yeah that that really was my main takeaway from both of those two it's and it's it's interesting because I think last year when we were thinking about Ohio State's offensive line it was almost the opposite it was like man I don't know if Ohio State's offensive line can really hang and against last year's Clemson defensive line that would not have been the conversation man that, that would have been a that wouldn't have been a great one for Ohio no, State. I think Clemson, Clemson's defensive line would have dominated that matchup. I also think if last year I think Clemson probably would have beat Ohio State quite soundly with, with the way Ohio State's defense played last year. But you know, I think I think we're going to be in for a really good game. Talking to, talking to Kyle and Brad, I, I, I really think that everybody kind of sees this, at least everybody who, who is not biased on one side or the other kind of sees this as a really evenly matched Matchup. I think the big question for Ohio State's defense is going to be playing against what I think is by far the most talented passing offense they've played. How do they hold up against that? But I think it's going to be a really fun game to watch. And, and next week, we're really going to dive into all playoff talk. Yeah, it's it's one of the, it's probably the most excited I've been to see to see Ohio State in a, in a, in a bowl game in, in a long time, probably since that 2014 run. I just think these two teams are probably the two best in college football. They're really complete. They're both super talented. They got a great quarterback on both sides. A really complete defense and offense. I, I, I think it I think it'll be I think it'll be a great one. I've said it before, I'll double down on I I think whoever wins the Ohio State Clemson game is gonna win the national championship. So do I. Let's get into a few other topics here before we wrap up this week's show. Wanted to recap award season a little bit because have had plenty of uh, Ohio State fans who have been upset about some of the way some of the awards went. Start with the positive. Chase Young, the big winner on the awards circuit, winning the Bronco Nagurski Trophy, the Chuck Benderick Award, the Ted Hendricks Award. 
no surprise there. I think just about everybody agrees. He is the best defensive player in football. Certainly the best defensive end in football. He's also going to be a – he is a consensus first-team All-American already. He's almost certainly going to be a unanimous All-American. No surprise there. No, no. Chase Young got all of the got all of the defensive awards that he deserved, and I don't think there was one that he was snubbed for, and he shouldn't have been snubbed for any because he's the best defensive player in football. When it comes to snubs, it seems like the one that Ohio State fans have really been up in arms about is J.K. Dobbins. And it started with the Big Ten Awards, but he didn't win Big Ten running back of a year over Jonathan Taylor. Then it continued this past week where Jonathan Taylor also won the Doak Walker Award over J.K. Dobbins. We've also seen Jonathan Taylor making basically every first-team All-American out there. J.K. Dobbins has been a second-team All-American on most of those teams behind Jonathan Taylor and Chuba Hubbard, whose name I finally figured out how to say because I saw him interviewed last week. Chuba Hubbard for running back from Oklahoma State, not Chuba. Chuba sounds better, though. I, I like Chuba, too, but but out of respect to him, it's, it's, it's Chuba Hubbard. But getting back to the, the whole point of J.K. Dobbins being snubbed, I, I understand it because... We talked about it last week. I thought it was basically a, a toss-up between Vosbury. If you look at their statistics, and I think I think Collins got them pulled up here. If you look at their statistics, they're all basically identical. Yeah, I mean, J.K. Dobbins has 283 rushes. Jonathan Taylor has 299. J.K. Dobbins, 1,829 yards. Jonathan Taylor, 1,909 yards. J.K. Dobbins, 6.5 yards per carry. Jonathan Taylor, 6.4. J.K. Dobbins, 20 touchdowns. Jonathan Taylor, 21. J.K., 17 catches for 200 yards and two touchdowns. Jonathan Taylor, 24 catches for 209 yards and five touchdowns. So you cannot look at the statistics and say that one is clearly better than the other. Now, personally, my vote would have gone to J.K. Dobbins. I think he is the best running back in the country. But I also think Jonathan Taylor is a really good running back. And I think, I, I think this idea, you know, in one of my tweets a couple weeks ago, I posted the statistics that Colin just read, and all the responses were, how, how could this possibly be true? And the reality is the stats are basically the same. I think the thing that Ohio State fans have latched onto here is this idea that J.K. Dobbins never played in the second half. But the thing that that misses is that in the last three games of a year, he had 36 carries, 31 carries, and 33 carries. So at the end of the year, J.K. Dobbins only had 16 less carries than Jonathan Taylor, and his yards per carry were only negligibly better than Jonathan Taylor. I also think that J.K. Dobbins is running behind maybe the best running blocking, run blocking offensive line in the country this year. And people like to bring up the head-to-head between J.K. Dobbins and Jonathan Taylor. But J.K. Dobbins is, has a much better team around him than Jonathan Taylor does. So if you want to make an argument that J.K. Dobbins deserves the Doak Walker Award, deserves to be first-team All-American, all of that, I don't disagree with you. But I also don't really think the outrage is justified here because I think Jonathan Taylor also has a very good case for being the best running back in the country. And and I don't think this is some major snub. I think it's 
three really, really good running backs who have all had very similar years. And actually, to be honest, if there's one running back who I think has been snubbed from this conversation, it's probably Clemson's Travis Etienne, who's averaged more than eight yards per carry this year. Yeah, it is funny that, um, like, probably a month ago, the Ohio State opinion was, well, if J.K. Dobbins had more rushes, then all his counting stats would be as high. But now that they're equal, the the yards per carry is basically the same. Um, in my mind, um, I, I do think J.K., if I were to pick one running back of, the, of those two to, to, to be my team's running back, I would probably pick J.K. Dobbins. But... I also look at Jonathan Taylor and the importance that he has to the Wisconsin team, and you just have to you have to account for that too. I mean, when when you're when, just remember the the time the two times that Ohio State was preparing to face Wisconsin, we weren't talking about man, how are they going to stop Jack Cohn? We weren't talking about this complete offense. We were talking about man, how are they going to stop Jonathan Taylor? And if you look at Ohio State, yeah, John J.K. Dobbins is running behind one of one of the country's best offensive lines. It is a passing game where Justin Fields is a 40-to-1 touchdown-interception ratio. There's a lot going on there. And if you look at Wisconsin, I think Wisconsin's offensive line is really good as well. Yet at the same time, he doesn't have that necessarily the, the, the quarterback there in the, in the passing game. I think, I think they're both great running backs. I, I really don't, I don't view this as a giant snub. I, I haven't really seen an argument that would make me think, yeah, I don't know how they got this one right. Yeah. I, think, I think you make a case for both. I think most of the arguments are rooted in the fact that he wears scarlet and gray. So, <laughs> and, and hey, that's that's a winning argument in your eyes. And there there is no like I, I would feel the same if it was if it were West Virginia back in the day and Steve Slayton got <laughs> and he got snubbed. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's totally understandable why Bill McGee got snubbed, and I, and I think part of it is maybe Jonathan Taylor fatigue because he's won these awards for basically three years in a row. But I think he's deserving. I, yeah. I, another 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 reason probably is that he's about to break Eddie George's single season rushing yards record, provided I think he's around 100 yards away from that, and yet he's not going to be the Big Ten running back year. Listen, I, I I get it. Yet at the same time, he's I I think people I think people have given him his I think people have given him his due too. Yes, I I think so too. He was named a first team All American by the FWAA. He's first team All Big Ten, and. At the end of the day, he's going to go down as one of Ohio State's greatest running backs ever, and he's probably going to be a high high selection in the NFL draft. So at the end of the day, the fact that he didn't win the Doak Walker Award is going to be quickly forgotten. Todd Nache did have him as a late first-rounder in the mock draft I on did, Tuesday. I did, I did see that. I, I think this, the same exact thing is true for Jeff Okuda because Jeff Okuda is probably going to be a top-10 pick in next year's NFL draft. I do think he has a leg- more legitimate case, though, for yes. feeling snubbed. I think of the Ohio State guys who were quote unquote snubbed. I think he does because I think Grant Delpit, the LSU safety who won the award, really just won that award on name recognition. From watching LSU play this year, Delpit was not LSU's best defensive back. Their best defensive back was Derek Stingley, a freshman corner who's going to be a top 10 pick himself in 2022. But I don't think Delphit deserved to win that award. I think he's a great player. He's going to be a first-round pick. But I, I don't think he was the best defensive back in college football this year. I think if we were going to give it to a safety, I would have given it to Antoine Winfield Jr., the son of former Ohio State great Antoine Winfield. has had a great year at Minnesota. But I, I did think Jeff Okuda deserved to win that award. I think he was the best defensive back in college football. 
that's a tougher position to evaluate because you don't really have stats. It's it's not like running back where we can look at it and say their stats were identical. It, defensive back, it's a lot more subjective. But I would have voted for Jeff Okuda. I was a little surprised that he didn't win that award. I, I don't think Grant Delpit was the best candidate. That's not taking anything away from him as a player. But LSU's defense didn't have a great year, and I think he was the second-best defensive back on his team. Whereas I think clearly Okuda played a, a huge leading role in how dominant Ohio State's pass defense was this year. Yep, and then moving on to the, the Heisman, um, everybody knew going in that it was going to be Joe Burrow. No question. Everybody, no contra- Justin Fields, Chase Young, and Jalen Hurts. And even Ohio State fans, I, I, I saw very few Ohio State fans who were upset about that. And part of that's because Joe Burrow played at Ohio State and he's still very popular among Ohio State fans. And even in his speech, he showed gratitude to Ohio State. So I I think most Ohio State fans were very happy for Joe Burrow to see him win and and see where he's gone. And I really don't think there's any controversy whatsoever about him winning the Heisman in a landslide. But we did see Jalen Hurts finish second in the Heisman voting, which I'll admit that that surprised me a little bit too. I, I, I thought... Justin Fields and Chase Young were going to finish second and third in some combination. I think what ultimately happened was they stole votes from each other because not only them, but J.K. Dobbins too. J.K. Dobbins finished sixth behind Jonathan Taylor in the Heisman voting. Taylor was fifth. So I think all three of those guys stole some votes from each other, and that's probably what ultimately propelled Jalen Hurts ahead of them. But I was a little surprised by that. I, I, I thought... Fields and Young both had stronger cases than Hurts did. Yeah, I, I was surprised as well. I do think it does just come down to the fact that there were three Ohio State Heisman candidates, and the way that math works sometimes is <laughs> all of a sudden the guy that I think if I, – I, I was surprised too. I just – I think that they stole the votes. I think that um, there were folks who voted for whether it be one Ohio State player and it just so happened to be one of them. I mean, Justin Fields at a 40-to-1 touchdown to interception ratio. I think Jalen Hurts at a 32-to-7. I think if you look at the way that they've impacted games, if you want to talk about missing the second halves of games, I think the case might be stronger for Fields versus someone like Jalen Hurts rather than Dobbins versus Jonathan Taylor. I agree because I think a big, another big reason why Jalen Hurts finished second is because his stats were much bigger yes. than Justin Fields. But the way I look at it is exactly what you said about the interception ratio. If you... You watched Oklahoma. Hurts made some really costly turnovers that kept teams in games. And because some of his turnovers and the defense were keeping games close, he was playing four quarters. So his his overall numbers are bigger. But I, I think Fields was – I think Fields has been the second-best quarterback in college football this year. I think Joe Burrow was best, best quarterback in college football. Absolutely deserved the Heisman. But I think Justin Fields, second-best quarterback in college football. But again, even for me, it would have been tough for me to decide whether to put Justin Fields second or Chase Young second on my eyes about. Whereas I think some people felt very clearly that it was Joe Burrow one and Jalen Hurts two. So that's what ultimately propelled Hurts ahead in the Heisman balloting. Yeah. um, Real quick, first-team All-Americans, Chase Young, Jeff Okuda are consensus first-team All-Americans. Wyatt Davis could be. And J.K. Dobbins was also a first-team All-American. Yeah, Wyatt Davis, we haven't talked about him, but we have talked about him, of course, of the year. haven't talked about him today, but 
He getting a lot of recognition nationally. He's been on two of the three All-American teams that make up consensus All-American so far. So a good chance he'll get it. I know we've debated whether he was the best offensive lineman on our team or whether it was Jonah Jackson or Josh Myers. But they've all had excellent years. I think it is deserved recognition for Wyatt Davis. Yeah, I do think it's funny how he was a second-team All-Big Ten uh, uh, recipient by the coaches, and Jonah Jackson was a first-team All-Big Ten recipient by the coaches, and yet Wyatt Davis is the first-team consensus All-American. You don't see that very often, but Wyatt Davis has had a great year, so certainly think it is deserving recognition for him. We finally... Saw a loss, not for the football team, but the Ohio State men's basketball team finally suffered its first loss of the year on Sunday. We had talked last week about you know this team, its potential. We 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 thought going into that game on Sunday that if if Ohio State won that game, it had a chance to be number one in the rankings this week, but. Laid an egg on the road at Minnesota. Just what were your takeaways from that game? What did we learn about the Buckeyes from that game? Yeah, when I was looking at the schedule, I, I honestly thought the Penn State game would be the Big Ten game that would be a little dangerous. And as it turns out, there was a Big Ten game that was dangerous. I was just wrong about it. It was Minnesota, which they lost 84-71. to um, I think that – I think it showed us a couple things there. I mean, one was it just – it wasn't the exact same Ohio State team that we had seen in maybe the first nine games. They struggled shooting in a way that they really hadn't before, which I think largely is attributable to not having Dwayne Washington out there. Um, on defense, I thought it was notable. I mean, they gave up, I think it was 53 or 54% shooting, 37% from beyond the three-point arc. It was just, it was, it was collectively, I think, the worst defensive performance they've had this year. They got out-rebounded by 12 as well. Um, it was, it was such a different game that I'm not really sure that I have a giant takeaway from it. Like, I just want to see I, – I want to sit back. I want to see how they respond on Wednesday – or on Tuesday, which by the time you'll be listening to this, they will have already responded. Um, and then on Saturday against Kentucky. Um, I want to see if that specifically – if they have Dwayne Washington back for that Kentucky game, Will they look like the same team they looked like in the first nine games, or will we see some of those some of those things that tripped them up against Minnesota crop up again? Wild statistic: Big Ten teams so far in conference games this year are thirteen and zero at home. So every single Big Ten men's basketball game, a conference game so far this season, has been won by the home team. That'll be put to the test on Wednesday, as Northwestern hosts Michigan State. So if, if Northwestern can beat Michigan State, we'll really be on to something. Yeah, and we'll really look at this Minnesota game and we're like, we can learn nothing because it's actually literally impossible for a Big Ten team to beat another Big team, Big Ten team on the road. So far it has been. So maybe we should have seen that one coming against Minnesota. Basketball, though, a sport where losses happen. Buckeyes still ranked in the top five. Still a lot of potential We'll talk more about them yeah. in a couple weeks. They're still number one in Ken Palm. Joe Lenardi has them as a number one. Whatever the net rankings are, yes, they're number they're, one they're in number those. one in the net. I mean, one game doesn't kill them. We know you guys probably want to talk more about football right now, though, because there's a college football playoff game coming up in about 10 days. So I've heard about it. We have a few questions from you guys to get to before we wrap up here. A couple of them that we did not ask our guests before that we'll still get to on the Clemson matchup. 
Whiskey Juice, who we he asked a question for Kyle as well, but we have another question from him. Is there a consensus on who has the advantage offensively or defensively as far as the lines are concerned? Well, I think from talking to Kyle and Brad, it, it, it strengthens the feeling that I already had that Ohio State's offensive line is going to have an advantage over Clemson's defensive line because this Clemson defensive line doesn't have Christian Wilkins and, and Dexter Lawrence and Cleland Farrell anymore, guys who were all first-round picks in this past year's NFL draft. Their defensive line is not what it's been the last few years, and Ohio State's offensive line has been so good. And then you go to the other side of a ball, and of course Ohio State has Chase Young, and we've seen teams the last couple weeks find ways to slow down Chase Young, but I get the impression the offensive line is probably the weaker part of Clemson's team as well on offense. So I think Ohio State could have the advantage in the trenches here, and and I think that's what they're going to need. I, I think I think for Ohio State to win this game, it's going to come down to whether they can control the game in the trenches. And I think right now, I, I feel fairly confident that they're going to have a chance to do that. Yeah, it's such a cliche, but it is true. Like especially in this game where you know. A lot of there, there are a lot of things that I think are, are even on both sides. Yet on the line of scrimmage, it does feel like on both sides, Ohio State might be able to take advantage of stuff. I think offensively they have to. I think if they do so, if, if Ohio State's defensive line does so as well, I think that would be greatly beneficial. I don't think it's as much of a need. I think for Ohio State's offense to produce like Ohio State's offense should and Ohio State's offense wants to, I do think that they're going to really need to win on the line. Kentucky. I think Kentucky, Kentucky, I'm guessing. Yeah, I <laughs> nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> what What are the areas in which Ohio State can challenge Clemson offensively or defensively? Well, that probably kind of goes back to what we just talked about. Where I, I think I think the the running game, it's always important, but I, I I think that really is going to be the area in which Ohio State has a chance to really take control of this game with J.K. Dobbins. Justin Fields, K. Bonet asked us whether Justin Fields is going to be healthy by game time. Ryan Day said on Monday that he believes Justin Fields is going to be 100%. Based on what I've read about a sprained MCL, I think that's certainly possible. I think you know that is an injury that in, in a free-wake time frame, he should be fairly close to 100% as long as he doesn't suffer any additional setbacks. So... I think Justin Fields is certainly going to run a good amount in this game. I think certainly J.K. Dobbins is going to be used heavily in this game. And I think that's probably the biggest advantage Ohio State could have over Clemson's defense. And I you know, I think on the other side of the ball, certainly you, you want to find ways to bring pressure on Trevor Lawrence. Chase Young always has a chance to do that. But if, if they try to take Chase Young out of a game, then you've got to be creative, whether that's dialing up blitzes, getting pressure from your inside guys. You've got to find ways to get pressure on Trevor Lawrence and try to force him to make mistakes because we saw early this season that Trevor Lawrence was a little bit interception prone. In the second half of the year, those issues went away, and, and Trevor Lawrence, I think, has played as well as any quarterback in the country. But early in the year, we saw some issues there. If Ohio State could put pressure on him, maybe they can get those to recur. Yeah, I'll just mention one other area that I don't think necessarily is something that I'm looking at that Ohio State really can take advantage of, but it, but it, it's one that I just wonder, and it's about Ohio State's defensive backs against Clemson's receivers. It's just because 
when I think about these two teams, they've just never faced anybody like each other. They're both going against what will definitely be the most talented version of wide receivers against corners and corners against wide receivers. I'm not exactly sure who's going to win that. I think it's I think it's a I think it's a huge challenge. Um, it seems like Sean Wade really, when talking to him, it seemed like he he was very excited for this kind of matchup. Um, I can tell you, Damon Arnett's going to be excited because I know Damon Arnett, and Damon Arnett's definitely going to be excited. And Jeff Okuda is viewed as the top cornerback in the country. If if that is an area where Ohio State has a has a bit of an advantage, it'll tell you a lot about how this game's going to go. That's going to be a really fun matchup to watch. I think it's going to be a battle. I think we're going to see yep. those receivers make some plays. I think we're also going to see Ohio State's DBs make some plays. And I know this. I NFL scouts are going to be watching that matchup real closely because you're talking in T. Higgins, Justin Ross, Amari Rogers, and then Jeff Okuda, Damon Arnett, Sean Wade all going up against each other. Those are six future NFL players right there. So... That matchup is going to be a lot of fun to watch. A few less serious questions to, to finish things up, so we'll get to these last. Bartholomew, who always has a fun question for us, asks us, if Tony Alford gets poached, should the Buckeyes try to get Freddie Kitchens to replace him as Ohio State running backs coach? Well, first part of a question, it wouldn't seem imminent that Tony Alford's going anywhere right now. He obviously wanted the Colorado State job. He didn't get that job. So I think most likely he's going to be back for 2020. I think that was probably the job that he wanted. So he'll probably be back as Ohio State running backs coach. But if he leaves, I'd have to say I'd be pretty shocked if Freddie Kitchens was Ohio State's running backs coach next year. I don't think he should be the Cleveland Browns head coach next year, but I think I'd be pretty shocked if that was where his career went. Yeah, that would be a little bit of a surprise. Maybe maybe since he's an Alabama man, Nick Saban should hire him. I don't I don't think it would be a very popular hire in the state of Ohio right now. No. No, not really. No, I can't imagine. Vinton County Buck asked, for holidays of a family, do you prefer the slightly buzzed and carefree approach or the stone-cold, sober, and stressed to the gills reality of this time of year? Well, I can tell you this much. We are going to be out in Arizona for the holidays. We will be out there on Sunday, and we'll be there all week. So I don't know that it will be stone-cold sober. I think it might be slightly buzzed and not carefree. Yes, and, and I think that hopefully applies more to other members of the beat than it does to us. Uh, I can tell you that there are some members of the beat who will be more than slightly buzzed for the entire time we are out in Arizona. And we'll just leave it at that for now. But I know that I will most likely be stressed to the gills most of the time because there's, there's a lot of work to be done during a bowl week. So... We'll be we'll be working. I'll miss I'll miss my family these holidays, but it, it is going to be fun to be out covering a playoff game, and and being out in Arizona, it's always a great place to be. Camelback Inn, the Media Hotel, is beautiful out there. So really looking forward to being out there. Really looking forward to a full week of coverage for this Ohio State Clemson game. Yeah, I I hate to miss Christmas back at home, but. Um... I will say if there's a if there's a place where I if I have to miss Christmas, like I'm not gonna hate waking up at the Camelback Inn. It's gonna Arizona. be a lot warmer there, and I don't like cold weather, so I'm I'm happy about that. True. Last question. Ginn and Juice asked, "Is Die Hard a Christmas movie?" 
I've never seen it. I've never seen ninety nine percent of movies. So, Colin, that one's all you. You are you're so lucky. This is the very end. I mean, whew, two hours, and I'm uh, you're lucky, Dan. Um, my dad would be disappointed. It's a big movie for him. Um, yeah, I will say it's a Christmas movie, but I also have such a low bar for stuff like that. I'm gonna take this in an unexpected direction. Like when people ask me, "Is table tennis a sport?" It's like yes. I think I, I have a really it low is, bar yeah. for stuff like that. Like, is uh, like is esports a sport? I would say yes, and some people will hate me for that. But you know what? I got a low bar for stuff like that. So yes, there the, it, it happens on Christmas. It's a Christmas movie. Is Real Pod Wednesdays a podcast? I hope so. I don't know what we did if it's not. Thank you guys, as always, for listening in to our show. We'll go ahead and wish you all a, a happy holidays now. We'll, we'll have enough for episode for you on Christmas Day next week. Coming to you live. Not really live, but it will be coming to you from the Camelback Inn in Arizona, where we will be out next week to cover the Ohio State Clemson College Football Playoff Semifinals. So next week, unless anything else crazy happens, which always can, I would expect the vast majority of our show to be talking about that playoff game and we'll be happy to answer your questions as always from out in what i hope will be warm and sunny arizona so thanks again for listening in thanks again to kyle jones and brad sankiv for providing some excellent insight on this week's show and we'll catch you all next week